0: Lord, I pray for a, a smell of your grace this morning. Like a fresh wind that would blow through our stale homes to bring life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would blow through our lives. Forgiving. Enabling. Encouraging. That we might walk ever closer to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a series in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter thirty six is where we are this morning. Very interesting chapter. We're going to read the first seven verses, and then skip over to verse 20 and read through 24. There are two other passages that I'm going to refer to today, although we're not going to read them in our Scripture reading, but I want you to go ahead and mark them in your Bible, because we're going to turn to them. So I'm going to give you a moment to find Jeremiah 36. In your pew Bible, that's uh, page 664. And then find these two other passages, Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and find a way to mark that so when we get there, you can turn to it. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and then several chapters or books later, 2 Kings chapter 22, Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Kings chapter 22, all reference to the sermon. But let's begin by reading Jeremiah chapter 36 and let's stand in honor of God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from these days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Nera, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation." You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath the Lord has pronounced against his people. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the firepot before him. As Jehudi read the three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the firepot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergartners and first graders to the back. And as David Heinrich's remarked this morning, we're recognizing this Sunday as Reformation Sunday because most people would consider, because they have to choose a date, the Reformation starting in 1517, in on the last um, last day of October. Some historians would say the Protestant Reformation didn't actually begin in 1517, but it began in the year 1439 at the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. And the reason they would say that is because they would say there was no real way for the information that Martin Luther was talking about to be able to spread across a whole continent uh, if there wasn't a way to mass-produce, whether it was his 95 Theses or other pieces of Scripture, uh, namely the Bible. And so as the Bible, again, as David was referring to, was getting printed in mass, people were beginning to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And that was the kindling, if you would, for this firestorm that broke out and we call the Protestant Reformation. William Tyndall was one of the leading men in what is known as the English Reformation, which began in the early 1500s. And Tyndall was a priest in England. And as he visited with other priests in England, he was horrified at how little they actually knew about the Bible. These were the people who were supposed to be able to read the Bible and then give the Bible to the congregation because the congregation didn't have a Bible in their own translation or their own language. There was no Bible written in English. And so they had to trust in the priests to be able to give them the Word of God. And yet what Tyndall found was that the priests themselves didn't really know that much about the Bible. And so then this just sent Tyndall into a real fit, and he had a conversation in what's one of his more famous conversations with another priest, and the priest looked at Tyndall and said, "We are better without God's law than the Pope's. We are better off without God's law than the Pope's." And in a real swell of emotion, Tyndall responded, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And if God spares my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plow in England to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope himself. And the way he was going to be able to accomplish that the sort of the the lowest person in society, the, the, the little boy who's driving the plow, how he would be able to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope, would be for Tyndall to translate a Bible from Latin into English. And so that's what Tyndall spent his life doing, translating the Bible. And he actually had to move out of England in order to translate it. And so he moved on to the continent, and he began to translate the Bible into English. And as he translated it, it got mass produced off the printing press and then shipped back to England. And there was a gentleman there in London, the Archbishop of London. His name was Worsley. And Worsley was infuriated that the people, sort of the common people, now had the Bible in a language that they could read. And so Worsley's attempt to try to gather all these Bibles and not have the common people was he was going to buy all the Bibles and burn them in front of his cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral. Now imagine just for a moment the irony of a bishop taking all of the Bibles and in front of St. Paul's Cathedral burning the Word of God. Well, Worsley found a merchant who actually knew Tyndall. And the merchant said, I know the guy who's writing these and I bet I can buy all of the Bibles. And so Worsley paid the man to go get the Bibles from Tyndall. And so the man who was a friend of Tyndall went and convinced Tyndall that he should give him all of the Bibles. And that he'd give him the money for the Bibles. And Tyndall, of course, thought, well, no, I'm not going to give it because you're just going to give it to Worsley and Worsley's going to burn them up. But the merchant realized that there was a second edition coming along that Tyndall was printing that was better than the first edition. And because of all the money that he was now going to get, he could print even more Bibles. And so Tyndall gave him all the Bibles and they burned them in one big fire in front of the St. Paul's Cathedral. And Worsley thought he had it done. And then he began to discover even more Bibles were popping up. And what he didn't realize was that he himself was financing another edition of the Bible that was coming into England threefold now. And Worsley just couldn't stop this great firestorm that was taking across England called the English Reformation. Well, Worsley's attempt to eliminate God's Word by burning is not anything new. In fact, when we look at Jeremiah chapter 36, almost the exact same thing is happening here. There's a first edition. Jeremiah gets his first edition out, and then we run into this guy named Jehoiakim. And we see Jehoiakim in chapter 36 is the son of Josiah. You might remember Josiah from the very beginning of Jeremiah. He was the king that was in charge when Jeremiah got his call to ministry. And now his son is on his throne, Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah is instructed to write on a scroll all the words that God has given him. And so he writes this down with the help of his secretary, Baruch. And then because Jeremiah has been such a lightning rod in Jerusalem, he's no longer able to go to the temple. So every time Jeremiah comes to the temple, he's just causing problems, so we're not going to have him come anymore. So he gives Baruch the scroll and says, Baruch, you go read it. All I do is get in trouble when I read what I say, so you go read it. How would you like to be Baruch? And so Baruch is a very faithful servant, goes and he reads the scroll in front of a number of different people who eventually then take this scroll into the king's court, and they're going to read it to the king. Now, these people realize that Jehoiakim is somewhat unpredictable, has this temper that sort of just flares up, and so they said, well, look, if if he already knows where Jeremiah and Baruch are, then as soon as he hears this, he's going to go have them killed. So before we read it to the king, we're going to hide Baruch and Jeremiah, because we have no idea how the king's going to react. And so in a very vivid picture, one of the king's servants takes a scroll. Now, you can think of the scroll as being one of those things that's rolled up you know, to the inside, so you're, you're rolling out a little piece at a time. And the, the man is rolling out and there's a column of words and then there's another column and you're reading it this way. And as the secretary or the servant of the king unrolls a portion and reads three or four columns, then the king gets out a very sharp knife and he just cuts it right off. And then he takes it and he puts it in this fire pot and he burns it up. And then the man reads a little bit more and then he cuts one strip away. Until there's only one strip left and he's burned up the whole thing. And Jehoiakim in this very vivid picture says to all of the servants and thus all of Judah, I don't care about God. I don't care what he says. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life and I don't want any other authority over my life except for myself. And he thinks, by burning the scroll, he's got God by the tail. And ironically, in verse 28 of chapter 36, you see Jeremiah's commission for a second edition, much like Tyndall was commissioned for a second edition. But the second edition for Jeremiah has some additional things. It has another column of information. Verse 30, this is what says in one of the columns, Thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim. Oh, well, Jehoiakim wasn't in the first edition. Thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat by day and the frost by night. I think Jehoiakim should have listened to the first edition. I mean, how would you like to be added in to God's Word and that be what's said about you? When we look at this chapter, I thought of it in this way. provides an opportunity for us to consider God's Word, which was really the foundation of the church and also the Reformation. I want to think of this chapter in these three ways. Trusting God's Word... The purpose of God's Word and responding to God's Word. Trusting God's Word, the purpose of God's Word, and then responding to God's Word. Verse 2, take a scroll, write on it all the words I have spoken. Now you see that that kind of phrase all through the Bible. In some sense it starts with the tablets that God Himself writes on, but... For all of the prophets and the uh, men of the Bible that are, are speaking for God, there's some kind of write this down and then say this. And as you read that, you should have this question, I mean, how can we trust that this is God's Word? I mean, I would tell my friend, I think this is the Word of God and that's why I'm following it. But you should have friends who would then say, how do you know? I mean, how do you know this is it? Why, why couldn't it be something else? I mean, there are a lot of other holy books that you can follow, or how do I know that just my word isn't better than this word? I mean, how would we know, how would we trust that what we're following really is God's word? And so as I sort of thought about how you might answer the question, that question that is fairly frequent when you're talking to people who are interested or even not interested in Christianity, the first three ways, as I just thought about it, are probably the most popular ways. Um, you can kind of go the, the Ravi Zacharias route. If you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, a very well-known Christian apologist who spends a lot of his time on college campuses. And you can actually go to his website this afternoon, which I would encourage you to do, and you can click on videos, and somebody from a college, I can't remember, Ohio State or somebody, stands up, a student, and asks this very question. And Robbie gives you a great, much better answer than I'm going to give you here for about six minutes. And one of the things that he mentions in terms of proof that this really is God's Word as he talks about the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. There's over, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by the person of Christ. And so he basically says, you know, there's something divine about that possibility. There's no way that all three of, 300 of these things written hundreds of years before the person of Christ could be fulfilled in any one person. So we're trusting that what they said really was from some source that was outside of time, like God. He was actually speaking, and we have God's Word. And I think to some degree, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, remember that picture, and he's walking with the two disciples, and the disciples thought that maybe Christ was it, but now he's dead, and they're not, they're sort of distraught, and what does Jesus do? He goes back to the Old Testament and he says, you have this information, don't you see it all adds up to pointing to me? And then he sort of reveals himself and says, yes, we should have been able to see it from the Old Testament that you are who you say you are, that we can trust what's written down in the Old Testament. Or I thought you could take sort of the Josh McDowell approach. Again, another fairly popular uh, apologist and very sort of factually oriented. And if you read any of Josh McDowell's books, it's sort of like a legal case. He he gives you some facts, and the facts sort of add up to this conclusion. You can't wiggle your way out of it. And so when he talks about the Bible, he has a very fancy chart, and he talks about the authenticity of the Bible. And then if you go back and you look at ancient documents, the Bible has better history on trusting that this is really what God said and these men wrote down, rather than any other ancient document. Aristotle, Plato, these other people, Homer, that you might read, have a lot less real manuscripts to go back to than the Bible. And so he just tries to get you moving down the track of trusting in the Word of God in that way. Or a third approach, Tim Keller has recently written a book called The Reason for God, And he talks about this question in his book, a very good book if you want to read it. And one of the cases or points that he makes in terms of specifically talking about the the Gospels as being God's word or authoritative or reliable is that they were written too early to actually formulate into some kind of legend. If if the Gospels were legendary, which a lot of people would say, then the people who wrote them would make themselves look better in the writing than the disciples make themselves look. Does that make sense? Peter, who's writing it, and if it's just legendary, wouldn't write about himself and say, I want to let you know how terrible a failure I was. If it was legendary, he would want to just include the time that he walked on the water and all the wonderful things he did. He wouldn't put in the book how he had been a miserable failure and perhaps one of the biggest failures in the Gospel by denying Christ. And so Tim Keller sort of takes that way. And I think all of those things have value, and I think you should have an answer to the question when somebody asks it to you. But I'd say that's not I don't really use any of those particular approaches, although I let people know they're aware of them. Uh, These are the three things that I do, if this is helpful. The very first thing I do when I begin to talk to somebody about Christ and that this is God's word, and this is the very first thing you should do, is to begin to pray for that person. Not not just try to jump to, here are the sort of the proof text. I'm going to sort of pin you down, and I'm going to get you to sort of say, uncle. I just find that's not very effective. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith that says this about the Bible, which I really appreciate, we may be moved by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem for the Bible. The heavenly character of its content, its doctrine, style, agreement, and all of its parts. The full disclosure it makes of the only way of man's salvation. And its many other incomparable excellencies which gives abundant evidence that it is the Word of God. Nevertheless... Our, pull, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word of our hearts. See, the, see the, the, the Westminster divines, the people who put together this, realize you can give many excellent proofs. But in the end, it's really going to be the Holy Spirit that convicts somebody and convinces somebody that this is really God's word. so the first thing I do is I I'm aware of that I'm aware that my proofs aren't going to nail somebody down, and so I'm praying for the person. The second thing I do, and this is fairly typical, and that you probably had this conversation, I would say, well I believe this is God's word I'm following after this word I'm trusting in it and I'm orienting orienting my life around this word and if you get somebody who's sort of an antagonist or a skeptic you know say ah, that's you know that's stupid or that's you know that's what they did a long time ago but you know we don't do that now and what i try to gently do is ask them this question well what word do you orient yourself around you see, when you're, when you're talking to somebody who has some sort of skepticism and they bring up the problem of God's Word or they bring up the problem of the evil or they bring up any other problem, which are definitely questions that you get asked and you want to have an answer to, they need to have a way that they're answering that same question. Do you see? And so I'm going to ask the person and say, Okay, well, look, I've, I've, I've been straight up. Here's the word I'm orienting myself around here. This is what I think is true. What, what word are you orienting yourself around? I mean, is, is it your word? Is it your parents' word? Is it a professor's word? Is it is it Oprah? Is it Deepak Chopra? I mean, who whose word has gotten inside of your head and you're saying, Paul, I think you're wrong based on what? What are you basing your rebuttal on? And then at least we can get on the same playing field. Does that make sense? You can say, okay, look, at least we're on level ground. You're trusting in a word and I'm trusting in a word. Just to get people to recognize that they really are living their lives by some word. Nobody in the world is just sort of floating along just trying to make it up as they go. They've got something in their head. And it could be a book. It could be something their parents said. It could be an old teacher. It could be a university professor. It's somebody's word that's churning up inside of them. And it's determining whether that's right or that's wrong. And at least we can say, everybody's living by some authoritative word. And I'm saying it's the Bible. Now, a lot of people would just want to dismiss the Bible, but they don't want to ask, they don't have to answer the question for themselves. And I'm trying to help them say, no, you need to answer that same question. And finally, I invite them to read the Bible. So many people I find don't, are like The bishops in England, 1500s, they don't really know what's in the Bible. I mean, a lot of people who are Christians don't really know what's in the Bible. So when I get far enough along in a conversation with somebody, I would say, well, how would you like to read the Bible? And I just offer them an invitation and say, let's, why don't we go through the series on uh, the Gospel of John? And I have a little package that I carry around in my car. Because I don't know when I might get in this conversation. And if I think I'm going to enter into a conversation, I'll have the little package with me. And all these little four books, they ask a question, and they give you a couple of answers to a question about the Bible's authority. But then it's mostly the book of John. And then you just read through it. Say, okay, you go home for a week, you read, you underline, you ask questions, we'll get back together and we'll have a meal and we'll talk about what's in the Bible. And that gives them a sort of a a taste for it. They begin to understand. They begin to ask questions about it. And maybe they have the same kind of skeptical attitude, but at least they're beginning to engage in the Bible. And the reason I think that's so helpful is because in Hebrews, you know this verse, the the Word of God is like what? It's like a two-edged sword. So the Word of God is going to work into somebody's life that I couldn't possibly get down into. No matter what kind of convincing proofs or charts that I would bring up, the Word of God itself is like an active agent. And it can get into places and mess with people's minds and mess with their their thought processes in ways that I just couldn't possibly do. And the other thing I remember is the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is Good. I would much rather eat banana bread than discuss a recipe about banana bread. Would you not? Well, what's your favorite recipe? Well, you've got to have eggs, and you've got to have milk, and you've got to have butter, and you've got to have nuts, and you got to have bananas. Make sure they're real ripe bananas. Well, does that satisfy your taste? No, you can't taste and see that a recipe is good. I want a hot piece of banana bread, and I want to put a lot of butter on it. And I want to suck down the whole loaf. I don't want to give any of it to anyone else. Because I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. And most of the time when people are reading the Bible, it's an active agent working in their life, and then they go, Okay, I see this is good. This is better than I thought. I was in worse condition than I had imagined, but God is greater than I could imagine. And I want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. Just this past week, I got to book four. We sat, we ate at K&W for a month. Not you know every day for a month, but once a week. And we just went through it. I've done this with many, many people. It's not something you need to be a pastor to do. We can give you these books, you can put them in your car, and you can pray for an encounter, and trust me, an encounter will happen. But then you have to have the courage to say, hey, I'm just going to offer you an invitation. Would you like to read through the Bible together? And just taste and see. Remember when um, uh, Philip meets Christ and then he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel? Remember that? And Nathaniel's sitting under the tree and Philip comes and says, we found the one Jesus from Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's kind of just shutting the conversation down. And what does Philip say? Come and see. I mean, it's just an invitation. Look, if you want to stay underneath your tree, fine. But if you want to maybe come and see, then that's the invitation. That's that's what Jesus, when the first disciples are following, He says, where are you going? He says, come and see. He's not nailing them down with proofs right off the bat. He's saying, hey, you come and see. And if it's true, it's good, It's great. And so you want to get somebody involved with really reading the Bible. Uh, Secondly, the purpose of God's Word. Let's look at verse 3 here. It may be, you're supposed to read this scroll, it may be, according to Jeremiah, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Eugene Peterson writes a book on the book of Jeremiah, and he writes one of his chapters on chapter 36. And he says at the end of that chapter this, I enjoy conversations that open with, if you were shipwrecked on a deserted island, what single book would you like most to have? You ever been in a conversation like that, some kind of party, and then you're trying to get to know people? I've usually excluded the Bible from the answers to prevent pious cheating. The persons who choose Shakespeare's King Lear probably are committed to exploring human relationships. The person who chooses Milton's Paradise Lost indicates a bent for theological meditation. But the best answer to the question I've ever heard was the surprising but obvious answer, Butler's Practical Guide to Boat Building. (laughs) Isn't that great? I mean, if you're shipwrecked on an island, how do you want to get off the island? And so somebody who's smart says, I want to know a practical guide to boat building. The book of Jeremiah is a boat building kind of book. It's not a book about meditation or a book about ideas. It's a book about survival. It's a book about how to get back home. Jeremiah shows us a life, how a life is constructed that gets us where we are supposed to be with God. Jeremiah, along with the other 65 books that have been added to it, continue to present the Word of God to shipwrecked people to construct a way of salvation. The Bible's, one of the Bible's main purposes is to help you see that you and I are shipwrecked. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's something wrong with it. And we need to get back home the place that, the way it was supposed to be. And the Bible constructs a way, and Jeremiah at least points out three important planks, so to speak, in our boat. These are three things that I think everyone would have to recognize in order to